Welcome, everyone, to Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, episode 300 plus. Now, you know, let me just uh, tell you folks something. When Barry and I and Lou decided to retire the weekly uh, episodes of uh, the show and Strictly Go Patreon, one of the things that the three of us had talked about was if something happens along the lines of, say, Vince McMahon dies, well, you know, we want to release a regular episode. And unfortunately, Barry, last night we got the, you know, the terrible news, not terribly Surprising because we had heard for a while now that Terry Funk was in poor health. And then we got the news that Terry had passed away. And I reached out to you and I said, well, shit, if Vince McMahon is worth an episode, by God, Terry Funk is worth an episode. Barry Rose, not only the wrestling world, the wrestling fans, but uh, everyone out there. We lost Terry Funk yesterday, Barry. It was a tough day. And, and we got to say, too, is that, you know, if we had done it, let's say Vince had passed and we had done a Vince McMahon episode, it, it probably would have been uh, very honest, very raw. And, uh, you know, we neither of us love uh, Vince McMahon. With that, we both love Terry Funk. And the truth is all of professional wrestling loves Terry Funk. And Terry Funk, to me, is the epitome of professional wrestling. If I was to think of professional wrestling, you know, some are going to think, oh, it's Hulk Hogan or it's Ric Flair or John Cena, whoever it might be. You say the words professional and wrestling put together, immediately I'm thinking Terry Funk. I think he was, Jeff, if not the greatest of all time. And we can quantify that, and certainly we're going to be discussing Terry Funk on this special episode. But Terry Funk was really the ambassador for pro wrestling. Here was a guy started in, you know, the mid sixties and, you know, through the territory system. Where didn't Terry work at least once? Where didn't Terry show up? Where didn't Terry work as the territories were gone? He was a star in the WWE. He was there at least twice that I'm aware of as Terry Funk and then his chainsaw Charlie, though everyone knew it was Terry Funk. He was in WCW in the NWA. Here was a guy that literally did it all, not to even mention what he did out of this country, whether it was Japan or Puerto Rico. Terry was professional wrestling. And years ago, and this goes back to, I think, when we were doing chair shots and someone made a comment and I, it, it stuck with me. Here we are 30 years later, and I can clearly remember the comment. And it said, you know, Terry Funk is an ECW now, and there's another promotion that I didn't mention. There's a lot more that are out there. And somebody said, you know, at 50 years old, Terry Funk has learned how to do the moonsault and is successfully doing it. Fucking think about that for a minute. Think about a guy that think about Terry Funk and his legacy reinventing himself to some degree and now doing a moonsault, a moonsault in front of just a couple of thousand people as well, right? Not in front of a Madison Square Garden crowd or, you know, a, a big pay-per-view crowd or something like that. To me, it was like if you saw Terry, and there's a lot of footage that's out there, thank God, but if you saw Terry, he was the same whether there was 200 people in a, in a high school gym or 10,000 in an arena, Terry Funk loved professional wrestling. And I think that was a big difference 
you know, so many guys, especially what we saw in the 90s and then into the 2000s, it, it really became about the money and it became about guaranteed contracts and all this other shit. Terry Funk fucking loved professional wrestling. And even until his last days and photos that might be posted in social media by people going to visit him, you know, Mary Nelson, Marie Laverne, who worked in the, uh, the Amarillo territory, I believed, uh, was right near where he was and uh, somewhere in West Texas or Amarillo. And she would go to visit him and she would post uh, photos. And, you know, he was still even in a state that you could see. And I know that I sent a couple of these photos to you. uh, He he was, he didn't look good. He certainly, you know, you could see he was seriously ill, but he would still strike his fighting pose and was still wearing a Funker t-shirt because that's who he was. That was professional wrestling. That's what it actually meant to him. Uh, one thing I did learn over the last 24 hours that I didn't know, he had apparently been transferred to some sort of unit in uh, Arizona. Uh, I think it was Phoenix, but it was somewhere in Arizona. So he wasn't in West Texas. That was kind of surprising to me, but it was devastating, Jeff. This, you know, it, I go back and I think which of the wrestling deaths have hit me the hardest. And, you know, I think Owen Hart was a very sobering, was a very sobering death in the fact that, you know, it it was, A, it was pointless. This wasn't even something that should have been connected to professional wrestling. And that was sad. But I started thinking, you know, and and I try to remove my, like, you know, obviously Billy Robinson or Rocky Johnson or even Tommy Siegler, who I ran his fan club and he just passed away uh, just a few weeks ago. Those all hit me hard. But, you know, I start thinking about Wahoo McDaniel and, and I, you know, Wahoo was maybe one of the first guys that I saw on a regular basis and, and he was larger than life, much like, you know, like Terry Funk or Dusty Rhodes. These were a lot of guys that, you know, as a little kid, these were these were larger than life figures. And Wahoo hit me really hard. And last night, I got to be honest, I was in a really shitty mood after this happened. And, uh, you know, it, it, Linda came home and I and I told her I flat out, I said, I got to be honest, I, I'm going to she was like, let's go get tickets for a baseball game. I'm like, I don't want to fucking even talk about it. Like, I'm just that devastated. And it's not like I was close with Terry. It's not, you know, Terry couldn't have picked me out of a lineup for a million dollars. That wasn't it. But seeing the majority of the man's career, I started going in 71. I'm kind of coherent and remembering shit starting in 72. Terry Funk was a huge part of my wrestling life. And not just was he, you know, he was just fantastic in everything that he did, his matches, getting angles over promos, etc. But, uh, you know, he was there. Terry was always there. And Terry was one of those guys, especially in the state of Florida, that, you know, if things were down a little bit or if we hadn't seen Terry in maybe a year, he'd fucking show up unexpectedly on television and all hell would break loose. And that's what you would get. So I I think and I, I got to say, and I don't remember where where Terry came in on Carl Stern's list. But in my opinion, I think he is the greatest of all time. And it's 
there, you know, there's so many factors I put into it. The fact that he headlined anywhere he went in every promotion. And I don't think he missed a promotion, right? Like other than AEW, which obviously I think he was too ill at that point to, you know, but he was everywhere and he was everywhere and really successful. And for me, it was, uh, it was such a sobering reality to hear that he passed. And, you know, we've been hearing these rumors for months. And I know I had reached out to you when I had heard like, Gwen, Terry's not doing well from what I'm hearing, but not, not knowing what the truth is, not knowing what to believe. And, you know, when he, when he passed, I, I was, I guess, grateful for the fact that the man wasn't suffering any longer, right? Cause he had been ill, but selfishly, our goat was now gone, Jeff. You know, I, uh, I posted about Terry's death on my own Facebook page, not just in the group. And, you know, I was kind of very happy to see that friends of mine uh, who are not wrestling fans, you know, who may have seen Terry, uh, you know, on television, uh, you know, in Patrick Swayze's movie Roadhouse. They, you know, along with us, you know, said, wow, that's that's horrible. I remember him from that. And. You know, so here's a guy that is not just, you know, as you said, if if he's not the greatest of all time, he's uh, the list doesn't go real far until you get to him. And you're right. I I can't remember where Carl had placed Terry on his list, but wherever it was, I'm sure it was not high enough. Um, I I sat there and, and, uh, you know, as I talked about Terry in the message I put on my Facebook page, I said, you know, I said, Terry's a guy that could go out and he could wrestle for 60 minutes. And I think one of the matches that you and I reviewed was a match with he and Harley race from Houston. Uh, and thank God those, uh, you know, the Houston archives are still saved out there on YouTube. And, uh, there's a match, you know, the match that I talked about was a, a tremendous match. I want to say like 78 ish and, you know, both guys still in their prime and, and were great. And it was a fantastic match. And I go, and then, you know, you could see Terry in a match where it's an all-out brawl. Uh, you know, you, the matches he had with Dusty were so legendary. And then, you know, you see Terry evolving into, uh, you know, a, a guy in ECW, as you said, 50-year-old uh, doing a moonsault. Uh, over in Japan, he was a guy that wasn't just wrestling, you know, with his brother against, you know, Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen. Uh, he was having legendary matches with Jumbo Saruta. And then, you know, he could... Go back and he was wrestling with, uh, you know, uh, Atushi Onita and, uh, you know, the, the kind of, excuse the expression, more or less garbage matches with the exploding ring and all that kind of thing. And he always made them watchable somehow. You know, I, I remember, I can't remember what the match was, but there was the match where Terry was fighting and then he came out with a, uh, a toilet seat around his neck. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, and, and you could laugh your ass off at stuff that he would do. And, the fact that, you know, there, there are some guys who are great wrestlers, okay? But let's be honest, they're kind of one-trick ponies. They either do the same match or they kind of wrestle the, you know, there's not a lot of guys that can do a 60-minute Broadway that have you believing that this shit is real. And then you sit there and later in his career, you see him doing a moonsault, and then you see him with a toilet seat around his head. And at every moment, you're, if nothing else, you're captivated whether you're live at the arena or you're watching him on television, you're captivated by his presence. 
And I think that's the ultimate tribute to Terry Funk. He never, ever failed to captivate you. And I sat there and I was trying to think, when was the first time? Barry, do you remember? I'm going to ask you this before I give you my thought. What was the first time you remember seeing Terry live? I think it was 74. It was 73 or 74 would have been the first time that I saw him live. And all I, all I can remember is, uh, he caused a lot of mayhem. He was the kind of guy who was, you know, it's, you, you watched Bruiser Brody come down the aisle in Japan, right? Or Stan Hansen, Tiger Jeet Singh, and everyone would scatter because they're either swinging a chain or just knocking people over. And Terry Funk was kind of like that. Like he would come out and he was this first time we've ever used it, a whirling dervish. And he would literally come out and people would scatter like that's that people believed, you know, that he was crazy enough that he was going to hit somebody. You know, and as I thought, I believe because I was a little late to the game as far as a live appearance. I, of course, saw him on TV, but I really didn't go to the matches a lot in the 70s. But in the 80s, I really kind of stepped up and. I think uh, me and uh, my boy Craig Halleck might have seen him in West Palm Beach, and that might have been like in a tag match with Dory, and I think that was the first time I saw him live. Uh, but, you know, think about this, Barry. How many wrestlers, whether they were personally trained by Terry or not, how many wrestlers were influenced by watching Terry Funk? That's a oh. lot of friggin' guys, I got to just oh, say. absolutely. You know, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, Everybody uh, that ever went through West Texas, uh, you know, back in the day, ended up copying Terry. You know, uh, we, we always used to joke about how Dick Slater, uh, you know, was a great wrestler until he decided that he wanted to be a version of Terry Funk. And yeah. that's, you know, kind of like where he wasn't as, yeah, he was still great, but not as great as he was in those very early days uh, in the mid seventies in Florida when he was looked like a future world champion. But even guys like Dusty, Dusty took stuff from Terry, you know, and uh, he was just so iconic, not just to fans, but to guys in the business who borrow things. I am, I haven't even, you know, brought up Cactus Jack and, you know, Mick Foley and, and everything that he took from Terry. And of course, wrestling is famous for whether it's promoters or wrestlers stealing ideas from other people. And, so many people stole from Terry Funk and, you know, it wasn't like Terry uh, went and said, uh, you know, you kind of kind of took that from me. I expect a little uh, something, uh, you know, unlike Vern Gagne, who, uh, you know, expected uh, 10 or 15 percent of your lifetime income if he trained you. But Terry, <clears throat> so many stories of the road about Terry. And, and you know, I, I said that was the first time I saw Terry live was probably in West Palm Beach. I was so blessed when I went to Japan in 1987 in December to uh, go there. And I was with, uh, with Dave Meltzer and, and uh, another guy. We actually got to go to Terry Funk's hotel room. Wow. And sit and talk with Terry Funk. And I sit there and think, holy crap, man, what, what a blessing that was to be able to, you know, just have had that opportunity, you know, and, and, I, you know, I think I've told you before, the thing that was, we also went to Dory's room and what made it so interesting from two completely different points of view is you'd go and you sit with Dory Funk Jr., okay? And Dory Funk Jr. would sit there and he'd explain to you, well, this is why this angle got over and this is why this angle didn't. And he would explain it in sort of, you know, analytical terms. 
But it wasn't like you're reading a reference book. I mean, it was like you were sitting there and you were like, holy shit, this is like really interesting, the way that he's breaking this down. And then you go down the hall to Terry, and Terry starts telling a story, uh, you know, about uh, crossing Alligator Alley with somebody. And, you know, he's he's shooting, uh, you know, oh, I, I, I tell you what, not Alligator Alley. I remember the story about he was he was telling about uh, out in West Texas, and they were making one of those long road trips that they used to have to make. And he was in the car, and Jumbo Saruta had come over, and Jumbo was still a young guy. And so they had sent him to the Amarillo Territory to get some experience. And uh, Amarillo, uh, you know, Amarillo was famous for the Japanese guys coming over and working with Terry and Dory. So Jumbo is in the back seat, and they're going from one town to another. And Terry's in the front seat, and he's shooting out the car, you know, you know, at a fence post or something like that. Just you know, probably uh, may have had a beverage or two. I don't know, but he's just like shooting at, at different things. So they come to this like kind of one stop sign town, and the the sheriff or the the town, you know, main cop was well known for having that town be a bit of a speed trap. And so Terry was like kind of going to just thumb his uh, middle finger, put his middle finger up to the uh, the sheriff there as he drove through town. So he just absolutely floors it, and he's flying through town, and he starts shooting the gun up in the air. And Jumbo Saruta is sitting in the back seat, just absolutely laughing his rear end off as he starts yelling, John Wayne, John Wayne. And, you know, Barry, you and I have talked about this more than once. The fact is, I really firmly believe that the Japanese fans, part of what attracted them to Dory and to a much greater extent, I truly believe Terry, is these guys were cowboys like they'd seen in the movies. Terry Funk was John Wayne to the Japanese wrestling fans. You know, that's why, John, you know, John Osuru is going, John Wayne, John Wayne. Yes, that's who Terry Funk was to him and to the wrestling fans in Japan. And, uh, you know, so many more road stories. I, I was thinking about... uh before I, I get to the rest of what I wanted to say, uh, you know, I know that uh, our friend Dave Flaherty was a big uh, a big fan of Terry Funk, and, and I'll tell you a Flaherty story about Terry Funk. So Flaherty does this impression of, of Terry Funk, right? And the impression is about an interview that Terry did. I don't know if it was in Florida or Georgia or, or where, but so it, it's uh, – and maybe you're familiar with this promo, Barry. It's where he's telling a story, and he's talking about his father, and he says – you know, uh, and I'm going to try to do it and I'm going to do a horrible version of it. But it's like, you know, when I was a boy, my daddy had a jackass and he told me that, you know, son, that jackass, uh, he's worthless and he's, you know, he's weak. And so I want you to go out and, and kill that jackass, shoot him in the head. And I said, daddy, daddy, why do we need to kill and shoot that jackass anyway? So uh, I think you'll agree that's a really bad Terry Funk, Barry. Uh, yeah, I've heard worse. That's not okay. Yeah. So, so Flaherty's is famous for this Terry Funk impression, right? So we, we go, I, I think we were like at Wrestle War or something like that. And so, uh, we happened to meet Jim Ross, uh, at a bar or a restaurant or something like that. And so I said, Oh, uh, Jim, you, you need to see my man Dave here doing his impression of, of Terry Funk. And so, uh, Dave may have, uh, I don't know if you know this, uh, back in the day, uh, Flaherty would occasionally enjoy a beverage also. Oh, like that, I know it's a shock. Oh. So Dave may have had a beverage or two. So I said, Oh, Dave, hey, go ahead and do the Terry Funk promo. And Dave just kind of like stopped. And it was like, you could see he was collecting his thoughts and he went, well, and Jim Ross <laughs> looks at him and goes, son, when the lights come on, you got to perform. And he <laughs> from so poor Dave never got to do his promo for Jim Ross. Uh, but I, I'll get onto more stories. Uh, 
in a second, Barry, but uh endless stories about Terry Funk. Yeah, you know, I uh I posted this I believe in my CWF group, uh Facebook group yesterday, but you know, there there are. There are so many memories when it comes to Terry Funk and I, I think I think one of my favorites uh was in 2015. So he and, he and Dory. So Joe, let me go back. Jody Simon, Joe Malenko was doing a fundraiser to raise funds to put a memorial wall in the old Fort Hesterly Armory. It had been purchased by, uh, the JCC and I believe it's called the Brian Glazer JCC. But you know, with everything that took place in that building, Jody wanted to put up some sort of memorial so that the history wasn't lost, that, you know, his father, the great Malenko and everyone else uh, would be recognized. So Jody put on what I think may have been one of the biggest fan fests of all time. And he had commitments from, you know, Hulk Hogan and Dusty Rhodes and all a lot of these guys. Well, a lot of these guys didn't show up and Dusty, Dusty actually died that day. Uh, that was the day that Dusty died, which really put, you know, kind of a damper on the event because taking place in Tampa and Dusty's dead is, it's a big deal. But, uh, the lineup was absolutely incredible. But anyways, Terry was there with Dory. So you may find this hard to believe, Jeff, but everyone on that, uh, that roster that was appearing that day. And you had some WWE guys there as well. Roman Reigns was there. Kofi Kingston was there and they were there because Dean Malenko was working, uh, for the WWE at the time. But everybody that was there volunteered their time. The only person that didn't that required a payday was Dory Funk Jr. And that was handled by his wife, Marty. Uh, and Marty, and this is according to Jody, uh, Jody was livid and Jody was telling anybody who would listen what the story was, but that the day of the event, she said, Dory's only going to come if you, if you pay him. And I believe the fee was a thousand dollars and Dory showed up, but Terry flew himself in on his own dime all the way from West Texas and they probably had the longest line of anybody at this event. There was, uh, I mean, this, first off, this event was one of the craziest. There was probably 800 people there and, and in, a, in, a, in a building that, that really couldn't hold 800 people. At least it didn't seem like it. And the line for the funks was somewhere around two hours. Like it was really long. So, uh, after the event, we were staying at a local hotel and it was the same hotel that uh all the boys who had come from out of town were staying at. So it's around midnight or so and I'm in the lobby. Pete Letterberg is there, Bobby Van Cavillar, a bunch of quite a few other people that you would probably know. And in walks Terry Funk and Terry, a little bit slower, uh, but it's Terry Funk. So you know, he, he looks tired, I gotta say, but it didn't stop me. I went up and I was like, Mr. Funk, I've met you before. I just wanted to say thank you. And let me interrupt myself right there. The beauty of Terry Funk was Terry Funk in his old days, you know, going back to seventies and eighties, probably even into the nineties, he was considered a wild man. But as he mellowed out with age, 
he was really one of the more fan friendly guys out there. And I know that, you know, I had talked with you about it and then I, I really hope that you'll share this story with us, but cause you had dinner with Terry Funk. He was at one of your dinners, but the concept of what we were doing in Lutz in my head, there was, it was all based around Terry Funk. You know, that, that was the guy that I wanted. And initially we couldn't get Terry because his price alone and justifiably his price alone was more than our entire budget for everything. And then his health prevented, as we were trying to make this work and getting donations, Terry's health prevented him from doing it. But when he walked in, I went over and I blabbed, you know, I, I was all excited. I'm like a 12 year old kid, right? In front of Terry Funk. And I'm, I'm letting him know how much he's meant to me. And at the same time, letting him know that I was in the front row the night he won the world title and that will always remain my greatest wrestling memory regardless. And, you know, he looks at me and, and I'm sure, you know, people have said it, that kind of stuff to him. And he looks at me and he says, I, I want to thank you, son. He called me son, which I never forgot. And I want to thank you. That was a really important day, uh, for not just me, but my entire family. Uh, and in my career, I'll always look back at that. And then I had extra, I had extra copies of the program the night that he won the world title. Uh, I think I still have two, but I, I wound up giving it to him and he looked at it and it, it was a moment. He, he looked at it and then he looked at me. And he said, I want to thank you. He goes, this, this means a lot to me. I've never seen this before. Uh, and he gave me a hug and that was really important. Now, of course well, he had on. seen it. Well, and let me say he had seen it before because he'd autographed two copies for, <laughs> for me personally. So I no, know that he had seen it. What I wanted to ask you was, sure. uh, and I'm sorry for interrupting, did the promo uh, or did the, uh, the, the card as listed, did it show Terry or the original opponent? It showed it showed the original opponent, which okay, was Lori Funk yeah. Jr. And, and and just to just to quantify that, the the plan all along had been for Terry to win the title that night. Dory wasn't booked, but they were advertising Dory, and there is a reason why, which I would I would I definitely want to touch base. But uh, it, Terry had spent really half of the year in Florida doing a ton of jobs for everybody. And I believe the promotion in, in, I don't know, the NWA, CWF, but there was a concern that fans wouldn't see him as a serious threat to Jack Briscoe based off of the volumes of jobs he had done just a few months earlier. So but the plan apparently all along that there was no, you know, no swerve here that it was going to be Terry all along. And I definitely want to talk about it. Uh, but with that, when I handed it to him and it, I think Dory's name had been crossed out and Terry's name had been because it, it was something that a fan had. A fan had gotten it and marked the results and winners, losers, etc. But he was very taken with it that night. And then I saw Terry which I guess was for the last time. It was Terry, uh, 
at a show in New Jersey. He had been at, I think it was the big event in New York in Queens, which I think might be the largest wrestling convention out there. And what they do is they try to get guys side gigs while they're in town to supplement, you know, whatever the costs and fees are. So he was at an independent wrestling show. I think it was a wrestle pro show that Pat Buck used to run and still may run. And Terry was there and had a table and had a long line. And, uh, I had a ticket with Aries. I was with Eric Cholminski, uh, and Zach and Eric had given me a ticket and it was from Terry Funk's first retirement match in Japan, which I think was 1983. And he had gotten it at that famous store in Japan, Doshuku. I, I, I'm sure I'm butchering the fuck out of that name. Uh, but he had gotten me that and I sat down with Terry and he, he was already slowing down a lot at this point. And one of the ways you could also tell was when you talked, he didn't remove his eyes off of you. And then when he responded, it was a very slow and almost methodical response. But watching him do his signature had become painful to some degree because he was very meticulous about his signature. And it was a very slow process. So I, I think Terry was having issues way back then, but I sat down and, uh, he autographed that ticket for me. And when he did that, I told him, I said, I, I don't know if you remember me, but I was the guy in Tampa, you know, five, six years ago, whatever it had been. I totally forget when it was, uh, that I had given you the program from the night that you won this, the strap. And he looked at me and he said, I just want to thank you again. And I don't, again, I don't know if he remembered that or not. And that was officially the last time I ever saw Terry Funk. So since I, uh, I was telling a little story, uh, as a joking way uh, about our, fl- uh, our friend Flaherty, I know Dave and, uh, and Greg Good, I believe were also there the night that, uh, that Terry won the title in, in Miami beach. And, uh, Dave still talks about that as one of the, you know, like just events that sort of, uh, as a wrestling fan, eh, you know, and like you said, it's something, you know, when you're there at a world title change, uh, you, you never forget it. Um, uh, I was there in, uh, in Nashville in 1989, uh, at the flare steamboat title change where Terry was one of the officials at ringside. And we, I think, had gotten a heads up that there was going to be some sort of, uh, uh, something that was going to happen. You know, they didn't, uh, didn't go into detail, but we kind of got wind that something was going to happen. And it's funny because Dave, Dave was next to me. Uh, Dave Flaherty was next to me there. And I remember, I think for whatever reason, there might have been another match after that angle took place. And it was something like, you know, like, uh, Kendall Wyndham against Tom Zink, like a, a match like that. And we had to catch a flight. And so we literally, after the uh, post-match angle was over, we literally ran out of the building and uh, caught a cab or something like that. And, you know, did the, uh, the run through the airport thing. Um, so, but, you know, you talked about being there for a world title change and uh, that was my world title change that uh, I was part of. You know, I also, uh, I want to mention a couple of, you know, one of the other things I mentioned in my Facebook post was the story that uh, Pete Letterberg told me about being there. And I don't know exactly where this was, but he, he told a story about he was taking pictures of, uh, of Terry in the dressing room and Terry was being very, you know, very 
talkative and chatty and very friendly to everybody that was back there. And, and Pete was snapping the photos. And then, you know, it was like, okay, I got to get ready for my, you know, for the match. And Pete says he kind of, you know, turned around and he left. Uh, and as part of sort of, if you will, getting into character, he said, you know, Terry sort of wound himself up and got himself into, into character. And when he came out of the dressing room, Pete was standing, I think he was either right by the exit door or, you know, on either side. I'm not sure which side of the exit door he was at, but he said, as Terry walked by him, Pete knew that like he, he would trample over him just as soon as look at him. If Pete got in his way, because he was now in that zone. Uh, and you know, the, the genial joking Terry Funk was no longer there. <laughs> you know, now the crazy man from Amarillo, Texas was there. And he would walk over you as soon as look at you. And you mentioned that I was also very fortunate that I got to have dinner with Terry. Uh, it's been about, I want to say seven years ago, eight years ago at this point. And, uh, I do want to mention, I don't know if he's going to hear about this or not, but, uh, Dan Lambert, uh, who of course some of you will remember from his days as an AEW manager, and he's very involved with UFC as uh, one of the owners of of uh, America's Top Team. Dan Lambert was gracious enough uh, through someone else uh, to invite me to be part of the dinner with Terry Funk, and it was if it wasn't the first one, it was the second one. It was very very near the you know origins of this whole having dinners with the wrestlers thing, and. A couple things that stand out is that Terry was sitting there and just telling war stories, you know, and was just having such a great time. And the two things I really remember about that evening, uh, I asked him, well, actually three. I asked a question that you had me ask him, which was how far in advance did he know that he was getting the world title? Nice. Uh, and, and he answered that. Yes, I remember that. And um, then the other things were. Well, number one, when we ended the dinner, it was like, okay, well, we're ready to go. And Terry was having so much fun. He goes, really? We have to leave. We can't, we can't stay because <laughs> he wasn't ready to go yet. You know, uh, the, the, the bell had not rung yet for Terry Funk that night. He, he wanted to work some more and, uh, and chat some more and uh, drink a couple more beers. And then the other thing I remember about that is, uh, uh, the, uh, the certain individual that helped, uh, arrange the dinner with, uh, with Dan Lambert, uh, who again for the, 300 plus uh, consecutive episode. I will not mention his name, but this particular gentleman was a, a fan of the fra- fabulous Freebirds, and I'm sure he still is. And so, you know, he, uh, and I say this politely, he's a mark for the Freebirds, just like, you know, uh, I'm a mark for uh, certain guys, you know, and, and Barry's a mark for, uh, for Jumbo and Billy Robinson and Terry Funk, like we all are. So we started talking with Terry about great tag teams. And, you know, who are some of the greatest tag teams that you saw or a part of? And so Terry was being very polite and he was, uh, he was answering the question. And so I looked at this person and I said, Oh, uh, who's your choice for the greatest tag team of all time? He said, Oh, it, without question, the greatest tag team of all time is the fabulous Freebirds. And you know, those, you know, times in movies where you see a guy just do a slow turn of the head and it's done very like methodically and, <laughs> With a certain air of, uh, of sinister, uh, you know, like any kind of turn to you look and the entire table just fell out laughing. And I leaned, I was sitting across from the guy, I leaned across and I said, do you realize what you just did here? You talked about a guy who's 
combination with his brother Dory Jr., along with like Jack and Jerry Briscoe. This guy has been part of one of the greatest tag teams of all time, and you're going to sit here and tell him that the Freebirds are the greatest thing. It's just like you know, know your time and place, kind of thing. And and you know, even Terry got a nice little laugh out of that. Uh, but what uh, you know, and I actually yesterday uh, at the time we we're recording this, I reached out to Dan Lambert. Uh, who I haven't talked to in a while. And I said, listen, man, I said, I want you to know that uh, it was because of you uh, that I got a chance to sit and have dinner with Terry Funk. And, and, you know, in that kind of, it was like a table with maybe eight, eight people total, you know, imagine that Barry. you know, eight people and you get, you know, two or three hours to sit and listen to Terry Funk still, you know, tell stories of, you know, how long, Ahead of time, did he know he was getting the world title? You know, what were some of the greatest tag teams that you ever saw? What what was it like uh, being in Japan and being revered? And that night in August of 1983, when Terry Funk, quote unquote, had his retirement match, uh, you know, you know, never, never. Remember that, Barry? Oh, yeah. Never. That was the, as I said, the first of his. How many retirement matches did Terry have? I think he he had about 20, Barry. He did. It, ter- that was part of the beauty, too, is that if Terry Funk was announcing he was retiring, nobody believed it. And I was at a show, the House of Hardcore show, seven, eight years ago in Philadelphia. And I, I think Terry had a hernia operation, if I'm recalling correctly. And he was basically saying he was done. He wasn't going to be in the ring any longer. And I don't think it was even a match. He was just going to shoot some sort of angle. And uh, you know, and I remember posting it on Facebook saying, yeah, Terry said this is it. And it was like, at that point, people started listing every time he had retired. I, and I don't think he ever did it. I may be wrong, but I don't think he ever did it in any sort of malicious way. I think Terry wanted to walk away, realizing that, you know, he was kind of hunched over, leaning to one side, and he just wasn't in great physical shape any longer. But the strength and his love of professional wrestling superseded any of that. I'll retire. And then it's like, I can't fucking retire. I got to come back. I got to do this. I, I got to make this happen. You know, you, you touched on something, uh, that was really important. And it really is the world title change too. And it's such a difference from, you know, the way things are today. When, when we were kids and we were younger and in, in Japan still was doing this for so many years, a world title wasn't meant to change hands every few months. It wasn't meant to change hands, you know, on television every quarterly or something like that. It was a big deal when it happened, right? Like if a world title changed hands, you, you, it was essentially the holy grail of professional wrestling. So, you know, the night that it happened, and again, I was a kid. It was a surreal moment, but I remember a lot of it. Uh, you know, I, I remember a lot that happened. I don't remember Flaherty there, but uh, <laughs> but he'll always tell me he was. But again, I didn't know Flaherty. I'm sure he was there, but it was uh, it was a really big deal, and it never. It never left. But what I wanted to mention earlier was Terry. So we, we first saw Terry in the state of Florida. I think it was 1967. And he'd only been wrestling, I believe, two years, maybe a little bit less. Came in as this clean-cut, blonde baby face. Uh, got over, you know, having the last name Funk was obviously huge uh, at that stage. And 
he, we saw him throughout the years and, and once Dory won the title and Jack Briscoe became the number one contender, Terry was essentially a heel at that point. He would have moments where he's a baby face, but he was essentially a heel with the exception of spring and summer of 1975. And that was probably my favorite Terry Funk, even though he was essentially a baby face. So he came in this state, and I want to say this was during the period that Harley Race was booking. So think about that for a minute, right? Because Terry Funk wound up losing the title to Harley Race. Uh, but I believe there was a great relationship there. And Harley brought Terry in, but he brought him in as a baby face. And I, I know that I've said this previously. I don't know if I've ever said on the podcast, but I suspect that I have. Terry was the original Stone Cold Steve Austin. He was, he didn't change anything. He was the same fucking guy. He was just wrestling the heels now. And, uh, you know, it, this was a period where Dusty wasn't around every week. Dusty was, uh, at this stage, probably the hottest baby face in the country. He'd only been a baby face for a year. So Dusty was traveling everywhere. He was in headlining everywhere that he went. But they gave the, uh, that position essentially to Terry and Terry became, you know, the top baby face in the state of Florida. Feuded with Harley Race, Roop, Larry the Axe Hennig. He was facing everybody that we had in the state that was a heel, and he was completely crazy. He was completely just doing all the shit that we love Terry Funk for, uh, but he was losing. That was the kind of the weird thing was, and it didn't matter. You know, the, the, this was the stage where Terry Funk would go out. He would kick somebody's ass for 20 minutes. He would do the job. Then he would immediately get his, his heat back by kicking more ass. And then there would be a rematch next week. So it wasn't like these losses, at least the way I saw it. It wasn't like these losses were actually hurting him, but he was really great because this was, I, I think, the prototype of Stone Cold Steve Austin some 20 years later. And I don't think, you know, I, I don't think anybody got a hold of Florida footage and was like, shit, we should do this for Stone Cold, right? I don't think that was it, but it was essentially the same gimmick. He was this kick-ass, beer-drinking baby face that, you know, if you fucked with him, you know Terry Funk was going to give it to you. And Terry Funk was the kind of guy, especially at that stage, he was blading in every match. You were guaranteed you were going to see juice. He would wrap his head in a bandage, uh, and he would go out there. And I remember there were there were some nights, and he had a great feud. I, I mentioned that feud with Harley Race. It was really incredible to see. And Race was the Southern champion. But the shit he was doing with Roop was equally as good and the respect that the fans had for Terry Funk, whether heel or face in the state of Florida, was also really unique. It's not something I think that you see every day. You know, I don't think Dory, uh, you know, that's not a knock on Dory. I just don't think Dory ever had that same level of respect that, that Terry did. Uh, so, yeah, just incredible to see, Jeff. So uh, I was just – Jotting down a couple things to, to remember. One of the things uh, I remember about Terry that I'm sure a lot of people that were fans of the old Georgia Championship Wrestling Show was, and I want to say the opponents were like maybe Ole and the Assassin, but when Dusty was was feuding with them and and Terry came in on the heel side and the heels turned on on Terry, 
Uh, and, uh, I may have said that wrong. Terry came in on the heel side and, and then the other heels turned on Terry. And then on the set of Georgia Championship Wrestling, Dusty is there cutting a promo with Gordon Soley and Terry comes out. And you know he's going to ask Dusty to help him against the guys that turned on him. But the way that he manipulated the audience, because if you remember, Barry, the first thing he said when he walked out to Dusty Rhodes was, I hate your guts. I hate your guts. Then in Dusty responded, I hate you, too. And then he said, you know, but but I need your help. And that was the time I think he gave him. Uh, you know, this is the watch my father gave me before he died. And this is my word. And, you know, it was it very, uh, it was a very emotional interview. And to see these guys that had had this, le- you know, Dusty and Terry Funk, to, you know, the, this legendary feud to see these guys, uh, you know, uh, sort of say, you know, you're, you're, I know this, uh, because you give me this watch. I know what your father meant to you. And I know this is your bond and that you're not going to turn your back on me. And, uh, that was just great stuff. And, you know, uh, a couple other things I want to mention. Uh, were you at the, uh, event in, um, in Davie, Florida at the rodeo arena with, uh, with where Terry came? It was Terry. It was Dusty. It was Abby. And I can't remember who the fourth guy was. Were you at that event? I was not. No. Yeah. It was a uh, FOW future of wrestling event that, uh, was put on by them. And I can't remember the guy. I can't remember who the fourth guy, but, but just great. Uh, you know, and it was all guys that, you know, Honestly, you know, and fairly, we're past their prime, but still, there was this sold-out building, uh, you know, a rodeo arena where they didn't have any any. I don't even know if they had bathrooms, but there were no showers in the back, and it was literally like after the event, you know, some of us went to the back, and the guys just had a hose. Like if you wanted to clean up, yeah, here's wow. a hose, here's a hose, yeah, you know, and so, uh, but it was just such a, a step back in time to be able to see. You know, these, these guys that were just such legends, uh, compete was awesome. Uh, I wanted to, uh, mention, uh, Barry, this is something that we've talked about before, but, you know, since we're, we're doing this tribute to Terry, I, I remember the story and I think, I think he might have told us this when he was, uh, you know, in, um, either in Japan or when I, uh, I saw him in Greensboro, uh, for, uh, Wrestle War, uh, 90. Uh, I saw him there too. And, uh, I want to, oh, that just reminded me. I want to mention another story. Let me just make a little note. Uh, but, um, you know, Terry, when he went up to Detroit, he and Dory had gone up to work a match with the Sheik and I can't, maybe it was the Sheik and Abby and, uh, the Sheik's, uh, territory was starting to really take a nosedive for a lot of different reasons. And uh, by the way, our, our Canadian brother, Brian Solomon, uh, if you haven't had a chance yet to read his book about the Sheik, it's an amazing wrestling biography. Uh, and I can't help but, uh, mention it at this point and just say what a great read that is. But so the story was, was that the Sheik's territory had been down. This was like around, I don't know, late seventies, maybe early eighties. And so he was trying to, you know, put a big car together to, you know, see if he can get one last big show out of the territory. And so he books this main event, right? And so, uh, so, you know, lo and behold, the fans remember they're all coming back to see the Funks versus the Sheik and Abby. And so they go on and they do all this promotion for the show and it pops a big house. And so, you know, they go out and they wrestle, you know, of course the Sheik was in the match. So it was probably less than five minutes, but they do this wild brawl all over the building. They get back to the dresser and the match is over. And, uh, you know, it's Dory and Terry and Abby 
and the sheik is sitting there with them, and maybe they're having an adult beverage or two, and uh, they're talking about how great the evening was and stuff like that. Well, at this point, uh, Ed Don George, who was the sheik's son, comes <coughs> comes walking in, or I should say kind of running into the dressing room, and he you know, kind of opens the door hurriedly, and he says, Dad, Dad, there's been a catastrophe at the box office, meaning someone had robbed the box office. And Terry's telling the story, and he says, I look at Junior, and I said, Junior, we ain't going to get paid. Because they knew that that uh, their, the receipts from the box office had mysteriously disappeared. I'm certainly not going to you know, cast blame on who might have been involved with that, Barry. But uh, so they, uh, at this point, knew they weren't going to get paid. Uh, so, uh, you know, I want to say that, uh, oh, the Flaherty story. So we're in Greensboro. And after that was the uh, the Flair Luger uh, match uh, that was uh, at Wrestle Ward 90. And uh, you remember that last minute hasty decision because Sting had been injured, uh, you know, uh, on the lead up to the show after the horseman had turned on Sting. So they uh, threw together the Luger Flair match and it was a great it was a great match and a great card. And and Terry was there because I, uh, Terry had started uh Doing color commentary on the the worldwide show, or maybe it was the NWA Pro Show with uh, Chris Cruz, and so uh, he was there for the event. And so afterwards, uh, they're back at the uh, at the hotel, and Flaherty somehow, uh, I think because he had a he had some sort of connections where he had uh, sold some music to uh, to Flair, so there was some sort of connection, and he um he got invited up to the after party. Uh, and I, uh, I unfortunately did not make it, uh, to the after party, but Flaherty told me besides, uh, the fact that, uh, Wahoo McDaniel was up there, uh, uh, exchanging chops with Ricky Morton, which might've been interesting to see, but he said that, that Flair and Terry Funk were talking to one another. Now, mind you, this is February of 1990. Okay. So remember all the things that happened after February of 1990, you know, it, Crockett was out, uh, you know, like as far as being the owner, it had been sold to Turner Broadcasting. Uh, you had, to, you know, Jim Hurd was involved amongst everything else. And Dave said that uh, Terry and, and Flair were talking and it was sort of like a demarcation line that, you know, they realized that now the corporations were involved and the territorial system was dead and that what they knew previously was never to be again. And it was uh, a very, you know, Dave in telling the stories, it was a very poignant moment uh, because here were these two guys, great world champions in their own right, you know, for maybe different reasons, but knowing, uh, you know, and, and Flair at this point was still the, uh, the, the world champion, but I don't know, February of 90, were they still call him the NWA world champion, Barry, or was it just the world champ? I th- was it? St- I think it was still NWA, wasn't it? I don't know. Yeah. So I, you know, I but know. Uh, yeah, I just remember Dave saying it was a very uh, poignant moment. Uh, so one of the things I realized is, as we were both talking here, you know, we haven't mentioned Terry's run in Memphis with Jerry Lawler. Yes. And, and how epic that run was. The very first time, for those of you that uh, you know, use this as some sort of benchmark. Uh, you know, Dave Meltzer and his five star, uh, scale, which of course, uh, everyone always has some sort of issue with. How could you not give Undertaker and Shawn Michaels five stars? You only gave it four and three quarters, you know, all those things. But, uh, the guy that, uh, originated the scale was, uh, Norm Dooley and Norm Dooley and sending back, uh, results 
on a match. Uh, I can't remember where it was from, if it was from Louisville or somewhere else. But he told Dave that this, uh, Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler, that this was a five-star match. And that's when the scale really started being used by Dave Melter. So Terry Funk was involved, a little history trivia note for you here, was involved in the very first five-star match that Dave Meltzer ever graded out as a five-star match, and it was with Jerry the King Lawler, Barry. That's interesting, and I'll tell you what, uh, Norman Dooley was a guy that I knew when I was a kid. We would go to these WFIA conventions together, and Norman would actually put out – it was less of a newsletter, but it was more of a result sheet. It was called Weasel's World, and he yeah. would he, he would rate all these matches with stars. I would love to find Norman Dooley and try to get him up on our Patreon. I, I don't know if that's possible. I've searched for him. I know he's alive, apparently, but, yeah, but I he's a guy that, not, that has disappeared into time because he really has. And it's I, I think tried to reach out and find him too. Yeah, did is do do we know is Jim friends with him at all? Did, uh, I believe. Uh, well, they were at the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I don't know if Jim is still in contact with him or not. But uh, and speaking of Jim, uh, let's talk about the uh, one of the very first times that Jim Cornette was ever introduced to the wrestling audience was through Terry Funk, and that is when uh, Jim. Had, I want to say it was maybe. First or second time he appeared, he had been up on there as a photographer, I think, or shooting ringside. But now he was being introduced as Jim Cornette, whose mom was fronting money to make him a wrestling manager. So Jim is out there trying to scout talent. And so then Terry Funk comes out because apparently Jim had made an offer to Terry Funk. You remember what Jim said on uh, Memphis TV, Barry? I don't know. It's a, it's a phrase. I'll politely say that is not really uh, well thought of in these times and days that we live in now. But Terry Funk came out and Jim Cornette standing there and he, he walks up to Lance Russell and he says, Lance Russell, I smell a sissy. Do you smell a sissy? And Jim Cornette sort of realized, of course, that Terry was talking about him. But what I believe, and I believe this is a story, they decided to play a little rib on Jimmy is they didn't tell him that Terry Funk was there to basically depants him, uh, to, you know, sort of give him his little, you know, introduction into the wrestling business. So Terry begins chasing Jimmy around the ring in front of the studio audience. And of course they're all howling with laughter. And I think very quickly, Jimmy realized that he had been set up <laughs> and he was about to be pantsed by Terry Funk. And so, uh, welcome to the wrestling business. Uh, you know, n- not so much, uh, uh, as a photographer, but as an on-air personality, Jim Cornette and Jimmy got that introduction, Barry. That's that's funny too, and uh, I I think when you go back in Jim Cornette, I don't know if he maybe Lou would know, but he used to do a really good Terry Funk impression, and I don't know if Jim does impressions, but uh, I remember from the old WFIA convention, he would do these. Uh, these impressions of guys like Joe LaDuke, which was incredible. He would do Jean-Louis, who was his partner, the hangman, and he would do Terry Funk as well, and he was absolutely incredible. But when you think about it, you were just talking about this earlier, Jeff, the amount of people in pro wrestling that were influenced by by Terry Funk, I think Jim Cornette's another one. I, I think. Oh, no uh, question about it. Yeah, I, I think you just look at it, and I, I think even on the surface, if you don't see it, it's there. It's you know he was just 
he was everything that professional wrestling needed. And the truth is it's what, what professional wrestling needs right now. And I don't think there will ever be another Terry Funk, Jeff. No. And, uh, you know, just right off the top of my head, I said Dick Slater. Uh, think about it. Uh, Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen. Uh, I'm sure Ted DiBiase, uh, owes a, a great debt of his career, even being the son of a wrestler. But you know that, uh, Terry Funk had something to do with Teddy breaking in. Uh, Barry Windham, again, a son of a wrestler, but you know that, you know, Barry was out there in West Texas and certainly, uh, Terry had to influence his career to some extent. There, there's really hardly anyone I can think of that would have come through that area that was not influenced by Terry. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I hate to say this, but I know that, uh, for those of you that are, readers of the Wrestling Observer, that I know that Dave is going to do a, an issue. And uh, because Dave knew Terry uh, on a personal level, this was, you know, not, not that he doesn't put great efforts. Uh, Dick Murdoch's another one, by the way. I don't want to forget him. Oh, boy, Dick Murdoch was certainly influenced by Terry Funk. Absolutely. Yep. But uh, but I know Dave uh, puts great effort into all of the, uh, the obituary issues um, of the Observer. And I know that he's going to put uh, a lot of effort and a lot of heart uh, and love in this particular obituary because Terry meant so much to Dave and uh, a lot of Dave's education uh, as a, uh, a wrestling journalist, uh, a wrestling historian, whatever you want to call Dave Meltzer uh, is due to Terry Funk because Terry Funk was one of those guys that helped educate a young Dave Meltzer on the wrestling business. And, you know, uh, so sadly uh, I'm, I wish he didn't have to write the issue but yet in another way, Barry, I'm looking forward to it because I know we're all about to get a big history lesson from Dave when he talks about Terry Funk. We are. And Jeff, as you like to do, uh, and as we like to do whenever we lose somebody that has influenced us and meant a lot to us, we like to raise an adult beverage. Will you join me, sweet Lou? Will you join me as well? Absolutely. Sweet man, you there? I am. And he is raising that adult beverage. I can see it all the way to San Francisco. So uh, there is two more things I want to say, Barry, before we wrap up uh, this special edition of Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry. Uh, I would be remiss, I really think, uh, although we said we want to dedicate this episode to Terry Funk, because we have friends in the uh, mid-Atlantic area, Barry. Uh, I think we really should also mention that on the same day that we lost Terry Funk, uh, we lost the master of the Kiwi roll, Abe Jacobs also. And, uh, I just for a, a brief moment, I want to mention Abe Jacobs, who is a guy. He at the time he died, apparently Barry was the oldest living wrestler out there. Uh, the only one I would think would even be in the same league with him would be Cowboy Bob Ellis. But, uh, Abe Jacobs also a guy that spent some time in Florida, correct? Yeah, he uh, he did. And I, I want to say Ellis is probably older. I, I heard Ellis was like 98. I, I don't have any way of verifying it. And someone, I forget who it was, it might have been Tom Burke. They There had been some sort of report or update about Cowboy Bob Ellis living maybe in Atlanta, something like that. But, I mean, he's got to be close to 100. But Abe Jacobs was looking. It's uh, – you know, the, this Abe Jacobs, his passing yesterday overshadowed by Terry Funk, but Abe was a really reliable hand 
in the 60s and 70s into the early 80s. And initially, when I saw Abe Jacobs, I think the first time I ever saw him was 75. And he was working prelims in the state of Florida. There was no... uh you know, there was no push. He was first or second match doing jobs on TV. And he was an older guy at that stage as well, or at least looked like an older guy. But Abe was a one half of the world tag team champions in the 1960s with Don Curtis. So he had a really solid career. Uh, and I got to tell you, I got to meet Abe Jacobs. This would have been 1996. And my ex and I were traveling from uh, Philadelphia down to Florida, and we spent a few days in Charlotte, and we actually went by Steamboat's gym. And I got, and my ex was with me, and I think this might have been one of the first exposures to pro wrestling that I had, uh, I had had with her. And, uh, so this was like the beginning of the end for you too. This one, it all started. Yes. And somehow I held on for like another like, Jim, go ahead. Yeah. I held on for like another 25 years or whatever, but yes, it, it, that was probably the start of it, but walked in and Abe Jacobs was there behind the counter and it was very cool. He was holding court with three or four people telling stories and I didn't say a word. I walked in. And I just stood there. I listened. And when it was all done, I went up and I introduced myself. And, uh, it was a very exciting moment. He was, uh, you know, it, he was very outgoing. He was very friendly. He gave me an autographed eight by 10. I took a couple of photos with him and my ex was very taken with him. He was this kindly older man. Uh, very respectful, but a great storyteller. And I just thought the world of this guy just on this one meeting of me showing up to Steamboat's gym. Uh, but what a career Abe Jacobs had. And yeah, you know, overshadowed in death. But, you know, as someone pointed out to me yesterday, he was overshadowed for so much of his career. But what a great, great wrestler Abe Jacobs was. Yeah, and I think you said exactly that to me when we, uh, we, we mentioned it yesterday talking uh, via text. You said even in, even in death, Abe Jacobs overshadowed, uh, as he was much of his career. So, uh, but I, I did want to mention Abe because I know that out there, <clears throat> our friends, uh, in the mid-Atlantic area, uh, whether it's John Hitchcock, uh, Bruce Mitchell, Oban Johnson, uh, and, uh, longtime wrestling journalist Mike Mooningham, uh, posting yesterday about the death of Abe Jacobson because Abe was such a big deal in the mid Atlantic for a long time, uh, as a, a bit of a homesteader, but, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Obviously he found a nice home there and was, a uh, sort of a venerable part of the mid Atlantic area for many years. So, uh, in closing, Barry, I just want to say, you know, uh, I was thinking about Terry's, uh, you know, our loss of Terry and the death of Terry, but I think, we can take solace in one thing. Uh, I think finally that uh, Terry will be reunited with Vicky, uh, his wife, who he lost, uh, I want to say about four or five years ago. And, and, you know, you have to think that, you know, somebody that has uh, been with somebody for that long and, and you, and you lose them, especially as you get older, it just happens has to devastate you. You know, uh, I just, you know, I, I think about the fact that my parents were married 70 years and my mom, uh, you know, it's been without my dad now going on two years and it's just like, it has to be like losing an arm, you know, that, that person that's always by you, that's not there. And I'm sure that Terry in his own way, you know, 
looking for his wife and, and she's not there anymore after all these years that, cause I, I believe, didn't they go to high school together or something like that? I, I think they grew up, I think you're right. They grew up together. They were married for years. They got a divorce and then they got remarried. Yeah. Uh, and he was devoted to her. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. So anyway, I'd like to think that finally Terry and Vicky have got a chance to, to see each other again and, and they're exchanging hugs and kisses. And then of course, as the, uh, the long suffering wife of a wrestler, I'm sure, uh, Vicky also saw that it's time for Terry to go have a, an adult beverage with guys like Harley Race and, and Dusty Rhodes and all his friends, uh, that he met along the highways and byways of the wrestling world. So Terry Funk, on behalf of Barry and Lou and myself, we say rest in peace, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the memories that you provided all of us. The greatest of all time, Terry Funk. Goodbye, my friend.